All right. Hello, and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. Joining me on the podcast today is none other than Michael Brooks. Michael is the host of the incredibly popular and also deeply informative, thoughtful, and funny uh, political talk show, The Michael Brooks Show. He is an author of a recent book titled Against the Web, in which he envisions something that he calls a cosmopolitan socialism. But most resonant with the themes of this podcast, he brings a background and a strong interest in consciousness to his perspective on politics. He's a committed meditation practitioner and also spent a lot of time in the integral philosophy scene that was growing up around the work of Ken Wilber. Uh, He regularly makes the case, both on his show and on others, that the leftist political project needs to root itself in a broader spiritual context, right? In some conception of what the point of material change is, right? What are the immaterial ends that material changes serve? So, we spoke about how politics interface with consciousness at both an individual and collective scale, um, the old political project of free time, and specifically how free time can function as a precondition for a deeper commitment to spirituality. Um, We compared and contrasted a universal basic income with a federal jobs guarantee, which was really fun and interesting to get his perspective. Um, And on the broadest level, Michael was, was asking the question and pointing to, you know, how can we bridge a commitment to anti-fragile localism with a recognition of deep global interdependence, right? How do we bring those two kind of polarities together? Um, But before going further on that, just a few things. First, I was invited to speak on two outside podcasts recently, uh, mostly to talk about the recent long-form essay I published on UBI and the capitalist production of consciousness. I was on Joe Wells's podcast, and we had a more pragmatic conversation about some of the details and logistics of UBI, capitalism, taxes. Um, Joe was actually part of the the writing fellowship with me where we worked on those essays, so it was really fun to get together and speak with him about it. And secondly, I joined actually a former guest of this podcast, Andrew Taggart, um, on his YouTube channel, and we got more into the philosophy and spirituality and ideas of cultural evolution that really underlie my interest in things like UBI. Um, I sent out links to those in the most recent newsletter, so if for whatever inconceivable reason you want to hear more of me speaking, you can check those out. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to help it exist, you can share an episode on social media to help more people find it. You can rate and review it on iTunes, which really helps. Um, Or you can become a Patreon supporter with a $1 a month donation. And that kind of recurring revenue is what helps me uh, invest in the quality of the podcast and spend more time doing it. So a a really big thank you to all of the existing Patreon supporters. And uh, that's it. All right. Enjoy my conversation with Michael Brooks. Well, Michael Brooks, welcome to the Music Mind Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're the host of the Michael Brooks Show. 
you were the author of a new book titled Against the Web, in which you, you actually gesture towards something I think you called a, a cosmopolitan socialism, which I would really like to get into. Yeah. But beforehand, just for people who might not be familiar with, with you or your work, how would you describe kind of the overall sense of uh, what it is that you're up to? Right. When you when you look at the world, what is it that's that's standing out to you that your attention is drawn towards and that your work on all these different kind of mediums and projects uh, engages with? That's a really good question. There's so many different ways of going there. Uh, (laughs) I think on a really simple level, obviously, a lot of the work I do does have to do with politics. And I care a lot about injecting uh, a Marxist or materialist understanding into politics. I think a mm-hmm. lot of how the world actually works is not understood or explained very well, to be honest. And I think that in some ways it's, it's actually very simple. I think uh, what we do all day and how we work and how we move and the institutions we're most in shape the way we live, think, and, and how our institutions work. And I want people to, you know, as best I can have that sort of, ba- you know, kind of understanding of the real power dynamics that shape things. And I do think that Marx's political economy does the best job of doing that. You know, other, other influences, I, I definitely somebody who's grappling with and, you know, I'm part of this thing called the left. And on one hand, I embrace that in the sense that I have no interest in pretending that I don't come from a place ideologically. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. And I think absolutely everybody does. But also, um, you know, I think there's a lot of tendencies and traits and, and uh, habits and ideas that are counterproductive and ineffectual and, and uh, inside, you know, different groupings hold us back uh, from achieving really vital and beautiful things, actually. So mm-hmm. I'm also really interested in how to really keep thinking more rigorously and, 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 uh, and, and building out on it. And then, you know, then there's obviously some level of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a personal vocation. So hopefully I'm getting better <laughs> at it. Hopefully I'm improving. Hopefully I'm maturing. Uh, you know, I'm one yeah. thing I can say with confidence that makes me happy is, you know, I'm definitely not the same person I was a year ago, mm-hmm. certainly not the same person I was four years ago. And I think there have been some small improvements, you know, in, in me as a human being. And I think it's another sort of paradox, actually, that I kind of negotiate. Because on one hand, I think the part of politics that tries to make everything about personal behavior, attitudes, beliefs, and sort of policing and, and trying to sculpt people in that way is actually mostly a deep waste of time and a lot of it is actually very cultish and disturbing and weird and, and, and counterproductive. Um, mm-hmm. I also do think that, that there is a, uh, there is a broader consciousness dimension to all of this stuff that I'm still trying to, to figure out. So, you know, I'll throw slogans like, you know, spirituality and Machiavelli or, <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. Not because I, you know, I, I don't think that that, describes anything super specific, but I do think that these are different traits and different modalities that we need to hold. And I, and I also think that some of the people that obviously I really admire, whether they're people that I've had the honor of interviewing like president Lula or Cornel West uh, are holding uh, some of these things and, and really how they are in the world, their kind of state of being. And so, 
You know, man, that's a that's a real that's a deep one. So I feel like I'll leave it there because I could just <laughs> yeah. keep rambling. Uh, I think that I think that does the trick. That gives a good kind of orientation, and it's 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 good to point out too that your your emphasis on uh, historicizing and pointing to kind of material structures as playing a direct role in our lives, in our mentalities, in in you know in that that kind of intimate dimension of what is so often partitioned off by you know the realm of individual or personal responsibility. That that's very much in contrast, right, to kind of the economic way of thinking over the, over the past 50 years. Is that kind of a, is that a, a tension that's set up there? Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, uh, the world is, is, and you know, particularly the United States, but this right. economy we're in generally uh, is obsessed with, exp- with coming up with, with narratives, whether they're about kind of traditional conservative stuff about quote unquote personal responsibility or even various cultural narratives. Some of them are very explicit and again, very, you know, explicitly racist, like Mm -hmm. underclass ideas, you know, like, or cultures of poverty, these other kind of, you know, magical thinking substituting for understanding deindustrialization and the decline of union membership. But even on the other hand, there's plenty of now that, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, kind of neoliberal woke splainers who, Mm. you know, want to go and, look at parts of the country that are just being devastated and, you know, talk about, you know, these mystical qualities or intrinsic traits of quote unquote whiteness Mm -hmm. um, as an explan, as an explanation. And again, not the fact that these places are completely economically devastated by a set of policies. So, you know, in a variety of different ways and contexts, there's a, and, and it's in, absolutely in the mainstream uh, with different conservative or uh, liberal presentations. There's a huge attempt to mystify political economy. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, and, and it doesn't mean that these – look, everything is just a framework. No framework covers everything. There's mm-hmm. – there's, and, and frankly, from an individual – on an individual level – if you don't take this stuff, you know, if you, if you turn these cultural narratives into a way of abusing and denigrating yourself, that's terrible and, and, and very dysfunctional. But on the other hand, if you say as an individual, I understand that I exist in these political structures, these economic structures that shape our world and are obviously bigger than any individual actor. And at the same time, I want to have some sense of my own plan, my own empowerment, of course, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very healthy attitude as well as, you know, a variety of others. Maybe I want to band to other together with other people and, you know, form a freelancers union or something. Uh, you know, of course, a sense of, you know, uh, personal empowerment and responsibility is important. It just needs to be understood in the proper context. And the truth of the matter is, is that in it, in, you know, there's all these big stories that people are obsessed with telling, um, that again, they just sort of mystify, uh, mm. trade agreements or, <laughs> you know, automation <laughs> or whatever, you know, yeah. which I think is actually generally kind of old versus sold in some ways, but you know, the, these right. things that everybody is, you know, we're, we, we mystify through cultural stories, what are really economic forces. Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a place for structural thinking. There's a place for individual thinking and, and you don't want one to crowd out the other. Maybe so. One of the themes of of the podcast so far is exploring 
kind of how economic systems interface with consciousness and, and specifically how certain economic policies and economic regimes even can either constrict or open up the kind of developmental possibilities, right, for the, the way that we experience ourselves, the world. And something that, that we've seen very much in the past 50 years of the neoliberal economic ideology is that many people, especially working class people, uh, people who labor for a living, package up their time, sell it to somebody in order to survive, feel this kind of increased sense of, of powerlessness, a kind of loss of agency. One of the ways that uh, there was a cognitive scientist on I got to speak to recently, John Verveke, and he, he wrote a sentence that summed it up, I thought. He said, there's a deep dissatisfaction with everyday existence and a disquieting horror of its perceived inescapability, which you know runs parallel to someone who I know you're very familiar with, Mark Fisher. Um, yep. And with Fisher in his unfinished uh, acid communism in the introduction to that, he had a line that, that I can't get out of my head. He was writing about you know, the ways that we talk about and mythologize the 60s nowadays. Uh, he wrote that in recent years, the 60s have come to seem like a moment more vivid than now, a time when people really lived and when things really happened, right? The subtext mm -hmm. being that now somehow we, we live less, things don't actually happen, change is not a reality that we experience um, which again is kind of pointing to this, you know, this this deflation in our experience of life and our, our zest. Um, and I think that this sense of of powerlessness, the kind of dullness, rises and falls with people's economic power, right? And in the ways in which economic systems either involve people or shut them out. And maybe to to pose this all as a question to you, feel free to bring up whatever you know whatever comes to mind. How, how do you think about that relationship between economic systems and how we subjectively experience our lives and, and our agency in the world and even the ways that we relate to one another? I, I think that's where most of the action is, right? <laughs> I, think, I mean, because I, again, I, I, I think especially in a culture that is so built on idealism, this idea that ideas have some type of innate non-material power. And it's interesting because you can see this default assumption in a, a huge variety of kind of pop intellectual products, whether or not it's, you know, new atheism or, or wokeness or a variety of things take as a starting point. What are human beings internally thinking? And then, mm -hmm. you know, sure that there's different, you know, some there's different discourses on whether that relates to people's biological inheritance or various types of cultural, political traditions. But there's this massive focus on, you know, what do we think? What do people think? And then how do we live out of what we think? And mm -hmm. of course, I think at the, you know, of course, I think ultimately it is some type of, you know, complicated meshwork integral process where all of these things are working on and reinforcing each other. And, you know, everybody from Gramsci to, you know, even some of the more recent like meta modern and integral people mm -hmm. would point to that. But especially because again, I think there's an enormous amount of truth to this. And also because we're so not used to thinking this way culturally, what if we followed, you know, Marx and Hegel or Martin, no, excuse me, Marx and Engels, not Hegel. Hegel actually <laughs> very idealist Marx yeah. and Engels and said, you know, maybe what happens is, is that we drive all day in a certain way. We go to the supermarket, we go to certain jobs, we spend time on these devices that incentivize certain things. And then that is shaping how we think. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. is shaping how we actually 
uh, experience the world. And, and again, it's, you know, and, and these economic systems and capitalism are extraordinarily powerful. I mean, you know, it's, you, you can go, um, you know, I, I, I'm a, I like a lot about Joe Rogan. Obviously, I have plenty of other criticisms. What you know, in, in a, in a, and there's nothing that could sort of be encapsulated here. But I just want to sort of uh, put that out there before I say this because I have a mm-hmm. lot of um, sympathy for him in certain ways. But you know, he, his politics sort of changed. He did end up endorsing Bernie, but you know, I, I've seen him make some some kind of you know statements about like the inheritance tax or whatever that to mm-hmm. me just kind of read like, you know, just kind of wall street journal bullshit. And what's interesting is that at the same time, you know, you could have this incredible conversation about psychedelics and what does it reveal about the DNA structure and the core of our consciousness. And, you know, <laughs> that's all on the table, but like these most sort of modest adjustments uh, you know, sometimes are much harder to get through or, you know, Zizek has talked about, hmm. you know, the just sort of total proliferation of certain types of freedom and uh, hedonism and so on, uh, which again, he's, you know, people miss this. He's not objecting to per se, but he is noting it's like one axis, like, you know, you can, the goal, you know, it's like, yes, there's going to be the singularity and you can buy yourself into some type of perpetual orgy through nanotechnology or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but then on the other hand, ooh, you know, if you raise the top marginal tax rate by 5% to make sure mm-hmm. nobody's malnourished, I mean, you just can't do that, right? Mm-hmm, right. You know, so, so I think that, yes, I mean, this and, – and one of the paradoxes, obviously, that I chart is that when I'm around – a lot of my real hardcore, you know, political people, um, particularly actually the ones that I, you know, see eye to eye with the most. I mean, people that I think have a really good grasp on politics. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who's sort of saying, but there is this other, for lack of a better word, there is this consciousness dimension. And I try to make it really concrete. I try to look at people like, you know, again, an incredible leader like President Lula, who has this spirit about him, this energy. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's part of how you, you know, that's part of leadership. That's part of genuine charisma. It's unescapable. And so there is this consciousness component uh, and, and, and I would connect that with a variety of meditative and so on and and different practices and ideas. And then on the other hand, when you go into the consciousness scene, you know, there's still this idea and it's incredible because it's like, you know, the experiment has been happening for decades like that. Oh, well, if people just, you know, if they just tune in somehow, if they just go on retreat or if enough Mm -hmm. people meditate or enough people, uh, you know, take an ayahuasca journey or whatever, Mm -hmm. we'll have this global consciousness shift. And it's like, sorry, that's just not the way it works. Right. You know, there's no, you're not going to magically bypass political economy. Yeah. Right. Well, even so that's kind of, you know, that's what started really boiling in the 60s with this whole consciousness raising movement. And ironically, exactly since the 60s, we've seen the opposite, right? We've seen kind of this, as I was talking about, this this deflation. So we've we've really seen that like what is missing in that kind of individualized discourse of if everybody does enough of their interior work, it'll just kind of spill over and everything else will just fall into place. Um, there's this kind of lack. And, and this is what led me kind of back into economics was there's this lack of attaching the the kind of discourse around 
consciousness and the discourse around, even if you want to talk about, you know, alleviating suffering and all these things, we're not attaching these to kind of the structural policies that do so in, in a democratized fashion for everyone and not just for the people who are privileged enough to, to take a week off and go to retreat or you know, costs however many hundreds of dollars nowadays to go to a retreat even. So there's this kind of like structural dimension where even in the in the spiritual context, there's a kind of meritocracy at play where, you know, if you wind up in, in the life position where you can ask yourself these questions and explore these questions, great. And if you can't, well, yeah, all right, it'll fall into place. Um, there's definitely a missing component there. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then it becomes not a spirituality that emerges uh from the roots and you can track mm-hmm. in different movements like you know liberation theology or even you know so many of these actual like eastern practices which you know not that they're in any way perfect uh in the context they come from but they come from really rooted contexts you know yeah. you, they come from very community oriented monastic systems as an example right uh, and there are actually also like different socially engaged Buddhist traditions, but even regardless, I'm not saying and the point I'm making is I'm not even just talking about things that are specifically political per se, like liberation theology, but traditions that absolutely recognize that spirituality and engagement in these issues has to filter and address the needs of every single segment of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of obviously the new age and the 60s, and this isn't unique to here. I mean, I've actually been reading about how, with the sort of emergence of a certain type of middle class, consumer middle class in China, there is a resurgence or a creation of interests in, you know, their equivalents of things mm-hmm. like Oprah or Human Potential, or, <laughs> you know, or, or you know, different versions of, you know, maybe even traditional religious interests. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of Christians, maybe interests in things like Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism, but like you know, made relevant for today's times. And by the way, there's nothing, I mean, I'm not saying that to criticize any of it. I mean, this is all valid. This is how these things manifest, but Mm -hmm. yes, you had a bunch of people who were ultimately doing, you know, middle-class pursuits that are created by societal abundance and then being in a specific position in that abundance. And then sort of, uh, saying like, oh, well, you know, this can all filter out into the consciousness of the culture. And, you know, again, it did. It did filter out into certain consciousness of the culture in good ways and in bad ways. But it certainly, you know, is not, again, it's not going to change anything in the, in like the real world of, of, of politics or economy. And (laughs) even as I say that the, the, the contradiction or the dialectic or whatever is that, I have no doubt that the consciousness realm is, is valid and legitimate in these pursuits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I, I don't know the answer to that. And I also don't want to um, do a false synthesis either. I actually think there's something really genuine and not knowing and, and seeing that tension and seeing these really obvious gaps um, in, 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 in both of these approaches. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting question. I, think about it a lot or like what what how should we be thinking about integrating you know the questions of spirituality and the questions of of economics and to what degree should they or how are they separated or not and there was i read a really good book recently by a, a guy named martin Hagland, and he did it in a way that that i thought was really fascinating he had half of the book was about you know what it means to live a spiritual life kind of in a more secular context and then the second half was a really really deep reading of of karl marx 
Mm-hmm. And his whole point, Haglin's, was that our spiritual lives, right, those, those dimensions of our lives that we value the most, that are kind of open-ended, exploratory, they're absolutely inseparable from the economic system that our lives are embedded in. And the, the way that he drew that connection was, was through the relationship between economic frameworks and how we spend our time, that time was kind of that bridge between them. Um, and that, that a, a commitment to spirituality would require a progressive politics that seeks to kind of democratically give everyone more and more control over what they do with their time, right? And mm-hmm. as you know, this is very much an echo of kind of the left's project for a long, long time. The reduction of working hours has always been something at the center. Um, but what I think Hagland is adding is here that that's so important is, is the idea that free time is related to our spiritual lives and that you know, free time is almost a catalyst for that kind of development. And I thought kind of given your experience, not only as, as a meditator, but also having been around the kind of integral philosophy folks, that, that you're in a pretty interesting position to, to comment on this, the idea that an economic commitment towards generating more free time for everybody, not just as an end in itself. Like we, it's not that we're, we're talking about things like universal healthcare. Well, healthcare is a bad example because it is an end in itself, but that there, there's a broader kind of spiritual framework that a lot of the project can kind of be, be woven into. Does that, does that make any sense? Kind of time being that dimension? Yeah, I think time is really, it's, it's so funny you say this because I just remembered a book that, I mean, I, you know, I read it, so long ago, like probably like 20 years ago or something, but literally just the title came back to me. And it was a book written, I think in the mid eighties by Jeremy Rifkin called time wars. Uh And it was all just sort of the framework of time as a central conflict around politics. And that's also, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a very interesting reframe in Marxism too, that has some, you know, relation to time. The idea that you know, wages conceal the real relationship between employers and employee because profit is basically the time that you're not getting compensated for your work. Right. 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 And so, no, I, I think that's really, really, I think that's very interesting. And I also think it's another element to consider with time is the, the notion that all of these modern, you know, technologies going back to the, you know, the Jetsons era of kind of pop (laughs) culture presentation, this stuff was sold as, you know, you're going to automate a lot more of your life and therefore you're going to have a lot more free time. You're going to be able uh, to spend more time with your family. You're going to be able to spend more time pursuing, you know, sports, spirituality, art, chilling out, whatever you want. Um, And obviously it's become exactly the opposite. Now we're completely colonized by Mm -hmm. these devices that measure our physiological reactions even, you know, and and Mm -hmm. track it even as we're holding our, you know, phones, whether they be from Apple or Google or whatever else. And so, yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely something to that. And I think that that's another sort of historical task of, basic, obvious public good left politics of things like making sure that everybody has healthcare and housing. The, the point is actually, I mean, one, there is an obvious moral claim. I don't think you need to go through a hero's journey or be some type of spectacular player in life uh, mm-hmm. in order to have food, clothing, healthcare, uh, shelter, <laughs> And to, you know, not be, uh, well, I should add, you know, uh, murdered by a police officer, in fact. Right. 
Um, You know, these things have to be on the house. They have to not have, this has to be stuff that regardless of who you are, regardless of your race, gender, age, academic performance, acumen, whatever, this is the stuff you just get, you know, period. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's, to, to the sort of people on the on the right who are you know obsessed with kind of personal journeys and personal narratives and overcoming adversity to the extent that's even genuine because obviously a lot of right wing politics is just sort of using these silly narratives to you know basically just sort of disguise uh, you know intergenerational wealth getting passed uh, mm-hmm. between you know, a small subset of the population, but even to the extent that that's real, the idea is that if you get rid of all of this absolutely preventable could be solved, no problem. And is just obscene uh, squalor and poverty. Then you can Mm -hmm. open the possibility for people to actually really explore themselves. And then you get into the, there's this idea from Peter Schlotterdijk in this book called you must change your life of this Mm -hmm. idea that like, religion really just needs to be understood as a set of practices, almost like personal Olympics. And you really start getting into, uh, you know, the idea that if human beings have enough basic resources and time, then they can actually engage in these real Olympian struggles with themselves. And then you can, you know, again, even like sports analogies can start to be really illustrative. Like, of course, like, we don't want everybody to, you know, win, a, a, you know, a grand slam or the NBA playoffs or whatever. We want champions. We want mm-hmm. intense competition. Uh, but there is a baseline uh, upon which everybody's at. So I went in a lot of different directions there. But, I, no, I, I think time is is a really important way of looking at it because in some ways it is an argument about, the time people should be able to have in in their lives. And also the last reframe I'd make too, is that if we really had a concept of public abundance, when we recognize that, you know, there's plenty of people who, who would be perfectly happy. This is, this is an enormous, this is a great tension in politics. So Mm -hmm. conservatives condescend to people in blue collar jobs. And they say, look at these, you know, smug assholes in New York and San Francisco. They don't respect what you do for a living. Mm -hmm. Now, incidentally, we want to get rid of OSHA regulations, pay you shit, let your company literally kill you. Right. But we know how to signify that we culturally respect you. Mm -hmm. And they're right. You go to the meritocratic neoliberal politics that dominate the professional managerial classes around the democratic party, those people don't have any respect for somebody saying like, Hey, you know what? My dad, you know, worked construction. I think that's a cool job. Maybe I want to stay in the same town and right. have the opportunity to make a decent living and raise a family. Oh no, no, no. Like fuck <laughs> that. obviously yeah. anybody who's worth anything wants to go to the best law school they can get to or whatever. And they want to move to one of the core cities of America and pursue professional advancement. And Mm -hmm. I'm saying that, you know, both of these things are total bullshit. And I want a society where, you know, again, basically like, yeah, the the construction worker, the fireman, the whatever um, is, is, you know, in most cases, certainly union protected, making a good living and can 
pursue the life they want. And I actually think in the context of pursuing the life they want and contrary to so many of the ridiculous assumptions of, of, of the sort of both of all kinds of elites in this country, people would, the idea of like pursuing uh, intellectual or spiritual pursuits would be something that would be broadly and democratically distributed because people are interested in those things, even if they don't need to create a whole personal identity brand or career right. out of those things. And and then on the other hand, you know, it would, it would also start to implicate, um, you know, the highly compensated and prestigious professions, which again, it, it also makes a lot of rational sense why people would pursue uh, working in areas like finance or tech or whatever, because these are some of the only areas that maybe you can secure a life for yourself in today's world. Mm. But on the other hand, I mean, we all know that, you know, you're not contributing anything positive. You're working at <laughs> Goldman Sachs, right. and, you know, and, and you're not contributing. I'm sorry. I mean, right. this stuff is not creating any type of real contribution or meaning either. So I, I, I think in, and, and also time is also in a much more privileged way, you know, relatively pleasant, but your time, you know, I would never compare if you're, if you're working C-suite at Amazon, you have a completely different life than if you're in the warehouse. Absolutely. And people who would say like, Oh, they're both just workers. You know, you're, you're, you're not acknowledging some huge differences there uh, in terms of income, in terms of power, no doubt. However, on the other, you know, there are large aggregate things. You probably don't have much autonomy in your life. You probably work all the time. And at the end of the day, you don't have, you don't have actually real power. And your best yeah. pursuit is maybe you can save enough to like kind of get out of there. So yeah. we need to reframe and rethink of all of these things. And I, and I actually do think the idea of getting rid of all this false scarcity so people have time to pursue the lives they see fit. I, I like that frame a lot. Right. It's funny. I remember, uh, Probably a few months ago, there was a write-up in the New York Times about the the book published by Angus Deaton and his wife Anne Case. You know, Deaton being a Nobel laureate about deaths of despair, which they've been tracking for a while, suicides. And one of the things they pointed out and they saw in the data was that one of the biggest uh, demarcations between like for what demographic group suicides are rising and, and where they aren't is that if you have a college degree, you're doing okay. But people without college degrees were seeing massive spikes in suicides. And I remember the author. His read on that, it was nuanced, there was a lot, but one of one of the angles was like, therefore, we should get more people into college rather than, well, there's a problem in the working class life rather than saying, well, then everyone should go to college. It, it seemed to me like the read should be there's something very wrong with what life is for people who might choose not to go to college or can't go to college that it, it's not a question of getting everyone through college, but it's recognizing the, the structural problem in, in that department. But uh, I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, way to read that that death of despair situation. Yeah, and I, and I also wonder. You know, I think you know I could see potentially in a more resilient society as we diversified the things and activities people were doing. There might be more people who had the capacity to, as an example, generate their own food. That mm-hmm. might be more of what they do. Right. Um, there might be more. You know, uh, sort of even fluidity in organizations between different people sort of moving in between different tasks and roles. But then on a much simpler level, I think there, and, and also um, if we had something like a federal jobs guarantee where you could actually Mm -hmm. incentivize really necessary work. Yeah. 
like, uh, you know, you go back and look at the incredible accomplishments of public works programs by the New Deal, including for people like artists and builders who just, you know, made things that looked incredible and therefore enriched mm-hmm. all of our lives. Um, I think that's really important, too. There might be, you know, a whole there might be a kind of I think there is a lane of I guess they call bullshit jobs that probably right. don't need to exist. Um, that's, that's one area, but I, but I also think there's just an enormous amount of jobs that we have been trained to, you know, frankly look down on or, you know, or condescend to or whatever that are great jobs. And Mm -hmm. the problem is not the job. The problem is that the job is not compensated. Right. It's not protected. Uh, and then at the last level, it's not, you know, socially respected. I'd add that too, but I wouldn't lead with that. So, yeah. I, I, you know, there's a ton of jobs that are absolutely socially necessary. They are jobs that people take pride in and are great. And the problem is, is you can't make a good amount of money doing them. Right. And that is totally solvable by policy. Right. Yeah, I was I was watching uh, one of your videos where you were, you know, if it was a clip where you're talking about how we need Cornell West in order to understand uh, hegemony, and you know this idea that um, and hegemony being notoriously a really chewy word and kind of difficult to to define, but loosely I'll take a stab and you can improve, but something pointing to the kind of the fluidity and the reciprocity between the structure of society and the structure of consciousness and in a way that kind of social systems perpetuate particular worldviews that further entrench the system, so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, hegemony is a really interesting way to kind of look at this relationship between um, economics and consciousness. And w- when you get into that kind of discourse, hegemony generally having a kind of negative connotation of it being a bad thing. The, the counter to it is, is counter hegemony, right? If this is going on, what can we do? What can we do? Um, and you and I have been talking a little bit about structural policies and how the individual approach is, is not enough on its own kind of thing. And so one, one of the things I wanted to do uh, with our conversation was to ground it in economic policies too, that, that kind of operate in this context we've been talking about. So I wanted to ask, uh, especially as you know, someone who's been doing years of analysis in your shoes and talking with a, a number of different people, if you were tasked with like putting together a manifesto as we come out of this, this kind of like COVID scarred liminal world, what are, what are the policies to you that are kind of um, should be definite parts of the program? What, what, are, what are the kind of structural policies that speak to these, these issues of hegemony, the issue of time that would, that should really be considered at a large scale? I mean, this part is is maybe the most kind of conventional part because I think the real question is how do you actually get here? I mean, look, every single person needs to have full health insurance. Period. I, I you know, I, I don't even. <laughs> it look, it's mm-hmm. extraordinarily important, but that right. really requires elaboration. So you need right. full Medicare for all, a universal job guarantee. And the reason mm-hmm. I like a universal job guarantee is that that gives, first of all, labor unions an enormous amount of power. Mm. Um, because it helps save people, you know, between not being able to threaten people's health insurance or the oblivion of unemployment, that takes away two of the primary threats that employers have over workers from organizing themselves for better conditions. Um, you know, third, I think it's very interesting to see what can be done on a policy level to say, 
And th- this is much broader. Those two are really clear policies. And I, and mm-hmm. I would just say too, historically speaking, there has never been big set of reforms that have improved people's lives across the board, whether we're talking about, you know, some of the social democratic advancements or the new deal that, or certainly, you know, most recently the, the real strides that we saw that the pink tide governments did in Latin America, mm-hmm. labor unions have to be there. Labor unions are really, really important. Like I, I get that there's a huge amount of, I mean, one is there's a lot of propaganda and, and very lazy ahistorical understandings of them that make people just not understand what they are and how they work and their importance. And then I also understand obviously that, you know, organized labor, like anything else has made its own mistakes and whatever. But the bottom line is, is that in whatever way it manifests and it will have to manifest differently today with different, uh, you know, in some ways, I mean, different technologies, but actually almost entirely the same power dynamics and marketing mm-hmm. sense. You know, I think people need to be clear about that. Like things that, you know, the way like things like power, do, you know, works or, or labor doesn't just, it, it doesn't just, I mean, it, it tendencies are accentuated by technology. They don't magically mm-hmm. change because of technology. Right. So right. at any rate, um, you have to have, there's no, if you want any kind of like broad based public good, you have to be committed to organized labor. There's mm-hmm. no other way it happens. There's there's other, I'm not saying, you know, there's a variety of different things you can pursue and so on, but there is no pathway forward without organized labor. So that I want to put out there as, as mm-hmm. something that people should familiarize with them, familiarize themselves with and think about. The third thing, I've been thinking of this framework of what does it look like to have deep global interdependence, sort of basically national social democracies and, and local anti-fragility like Nassim Taleb talks about or resiliency, although he makes anti-fragility to him is actually a a stronger concept than resiliency if we're using his system. Mm -hmm. And the idea, and, and I think that this framework potentially answers a lot of questions because we've got, you know, we have a resurgent nationalism right now. We have so many contradictions on the left because, I mean, you know, one part of the left just says, oh, okay, well, you know, there's a resurgent nationalism. So now all of a sudden we're going to, you know, make these, you know, just utopian, ahistorical demands about the nation state. Not only are we not going to even try to understand where that impulse is coming from, we'll just label it all as, you know, fascist or racist or whatever and then make, you know – demands that just aren't on the political table. And one of the things that's really practically disturbing about that is that, you know, the extremes and the dangerous zones of right-wing politics are either completely in power or have deep access to power. Mm-hmm. Whereas people making the kind of analog, I'm not saying moral analog, they're not morally the same, but in terms of like kind of maximalist visions the the right can achieve those. <laughs> And the left cannot, you know, so mm, right. this is something that, you know, people need to get along. And then there's another kind of enormous contradiction because, you know, on a practical level, we're, you know, particularly like in the United States, we're actually saying, look, we, of course, like we don't want a government that spies on people or abuses mm-hmm. asylum seekers, but absolutely we want a government that gives everybody health care and upgrades infrastructure and, you know, 
protects large swaths of our natural ecology and has a national labor relations board that empowers labor. Like we actually all recognize that in today's phase of development, it's a question about the nature of the state. So mm-hmm. basically what, and, and I think people's, and, and not just saying that any identification, because most people do have some identification with their nation state. So if we just say any identification that you have with your nation state is reactionary, well, you know, we're turning off plenty of people that don't have a reactionary conception of that. And so, you know, seeding that ground is, is, is not strategic. Right. So then on the other hand, and then on the other hand, of course, we live in a deeply interdependent world. And practically speaking, obviously, you need international coordination on ecology, arms control, pandemics, uh, mm. love to see, you know, the empowerment of international labor organization, uh, right. you know, various corporate I mean, taxes, corporate taxes, uh, yeah. the, the pleasure and awesomeness of, in fact, yes, living in a world where you can be, uh, you can be international. You mm-hmm. can have bands and bonds of friendship across boundaries. You can travel. You can use the positive side of these communicative technologies to try to, you know, build uh, relationships and understandings across the world. These are enormously positive things. And actually, I think if they're po- properly understood, most people would understand that they like these things too. Right. And then on the other end, actually, part of this strong desire that people have for some sense of kind of more power in their own lives, I think does need to be filtered into a healthy way for this local anti-fragility. So obviously, Mm. of course, when it comes to things like, you know, we have to be really simple about these things and clear, you know, civil rights and things like that, that's guaranteed by the infrastructure of the federal government, things like that. This is not what we're talking about, obviously. Um, But, uh, people having a lot more uh, independence to the extent it's possible. I I don't, you know, these are big open questions, but I think as much power that people can kind of have over food production, over energy, uh, at the very least having some more resiliency and anti-fragility in those systems, this is a really powerful and positive thing. I think, you know, community-supported agriculture, seed banks, people, um, you know, getting together. And and also, this is a big fight that will be national and international as well, actually, but mm-hmm. big fights around IP. I mean, I was noticing right. people were talking about using uh, 3D printing to help fill the gap on the, um, you know, medical supply crisis with COVID. And, mm-hmm. you know, the companies were actually clamping down saying that they were violating IP. So oh, wow. there's a, there's a big fake artificial scarcity with those areas um, right. that could be, you know, obviously if we move to a commons approach would be eliminated and could potentially like, we always go to the fear scenarios, like people producing weapons and so on. And look, that's right. a real concern of course, but there's also an incredible opportunity for people to actually you know, locally source a lot of what they need to live. And if there's mm-hmm. health and again, I don't romanticize the local, the local can, is probably actually on the main more corrupt than the national. Right. So it's not a question of just letting people off into, you know, little decentralized bands. It's a question of what is a truly fluid and dynamic system that people are moving 
back and forth um, in all three areas, depending mm-hmm. on what we're talking about. So that the the food production for one part of a necessity is hyper local. Then a you know a, a communications network. Um, around a shared international goal on labor or disarmament or even just, you know, participating in, you know, the global culture of soccer, basketball, music, right. or whatever, or, or spirituality is deeply global and international and accessible. And then obviously other things like, you know, the national delivery of healthcare, the national guarantee of certain, you know, bedrock civil and, and legal rights. These are functions of a healthy robust national social democracies and people can start, um, you know, identifying, uh, this is actually a positive way, you know, that people can kind of move fluidly between different areas of, of where they identify. Right. It's, and, you know, it's interesting, especially within the context of, of looking at anti-fragility and the relationship between localism and kind of uh, commons or universality, an area that, that I've been doing a lot of, a lot of research in, and I'd be curious to, to get your take here. Uh, specifically, when you're talking about a, a jobs guarantee, I wonder how, how we would compare something like that to something like a basic income. And the, the necessary, there's all kinds of caveats necessary, but as I know, you know, right, basic income is not a policy. It's an umbrella term for all kinds of things. And it's, it's just as susceptible to become a kind of conservative libertarian ploy. But if we think about basic income in terms of a, a leftist progressive kind of a supplement and complement to welfare as opposed to something meant to replace everything, do, do you see or do you, do you feel that a basic income could meet the same criteria that a job guarantee does? Or do you think there's some kind of uh, irreconcilable difference there that, that makes one more preferable to the other? I don't think, I don't know necessarily know that they're irreconcilable. And I like that you, you know, my first objection to UBI is always going to be that how some people have put it forward is definitely something that would undermine a broader safety net. And that right. is just, you know, we reject that, of course, but right. I think that it, I think the idea of incentivizing people to be part of, and, and maybe, uh, you know, whatever, I don't have this big allergy to the word work that a lot mm-hmm. of people apparently have. But when I say a federal guarantee, I don't mean, you know, I, there there is so much work that needs to be done, you know, just in the United States, everything from, you know, really concrete stuff, like the bridges are falling apart, but also to like, you know, people who are mentors, people who are doing an enormous amount of good in their communities, in relationships and contexts that are never going to be recognized in a market context Mm -hmm. that we could easily say, because the point of a federal jobs guarantee is a social good point, it's a public good point, that there was no market necessarily during the New Deal to pay actors to travel across rural America and put on shows. Right. There was no need that in addition to these hugely important public works projects like the Tennessee Valley Authority that we still actually rely on, that the infrastructure around them actually be really beautiful and have architects and master craftsmen. So what I like about that is I like that it really, it, it, and it also empowers labor in a way that a UBI doesn't. 
because it's right. still different to be able to say I've got another like career, a job, something lined up. It's a serious competitive option. Yeah. So, you know, to me, UBI, and again, I also, UBI doesn't, UBI requires so many other mechanisms to be in place too. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so we're going to have a UBI. So then, and by the way, of course, I think there should be forms of federal rent control, incidentally. Uh, but what are you going to do immediately to make sure, because in, in, in large urban areas, most of that check is going to get snapped up. Right. immediately by a landlord. And and this was something I noticed that people got very upset when I said, but they never had any answer for it. I mean, if right. the answer was we live in like, you know, the answer could be that you live in a, in a more rural area and this stuff could go a much longer way. And I think that that could be true. And I think that's a valid argument, but it still doesn't make it more effective than the jobs guarantee. Right. So I, you know, I'm not opposed to it. I just don't. Um, it's something I'd love to see piloted and tested. Mm-hmm. I have an allergy to some, you know, definitely. I think there's people who've deployed it and I go, you know, Charles Murray wrote a book several right. years ago, basically just saying like, you know, he wants to just completely eat up the safety net and give people a couple of grand a month. And if you spent two seconds thinking about it, that would be an absolute disaster right. for most working and poor people. And actually, hell of a lot of middle-class people too, to the extent mm-hmm. they still exist. Um, but you know, I'm not, no, I, 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 yeah. But I think if, if it was part of a larger set of packages and certainly, you know, during Corona, I've totally embraced it. Although it's, it's interesting to me because Kerala in India, the state of Kerala mm-hmm. has been hugely successful under yeah. their, you know, they have a Marxist state government right? and they have not done a UBI. Yeah. Because they're actually concerned about basically its inflationary effects and what mm-hmm. it would do with the prices of basic goods. And they have enormous community networks that they've been able to mobilize to deliver food to people, to do contract, you know, to, to do a lot of things um, to contain it that they've mobilized the social infrastructure around. So it just still seems to me that that is just ultimately more desirable and more dynamic. But I also, the last thing I'll say is like, I, you know, I completely, I, I, the vast majority of my life, vast majority of my life, you know, an extra 2000, thousand buck, 500 bucks a month would have been nothing to sneeze at. So I completely get the urgency of that need. And if a situation arises where, you know, certainly as long as it's not undermining anything else that's already been accomplished and leave people worse off, I'm totally open to it. But as a point of primary focus, uh, that just doesn't do what single payer and jobs guarantee does. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, as we, as we kind of wind down, I'll let you get out of here, but I'll throw, I'll throw one last question your way. Um, As someone who, has been in, in the conversation for a long time and spoken with a lot of people. Where are there any particular uh, books, thinkers, platforms, places where you see like really serious kind of grounded work being done that uh, people who, who want to kind of get more involved can go other than of course, the Michael Brooks show, which I recommend everyone check out. But uh, yeah, wh- where would you port- point people to go over like really get a, a grounded idea of what's happening right now and what we can do? You know, that's, that's hard. Partially because, I mean, there's actually so so many things 
but I think, you know, part of what I do and what I would encourage other people to do is, is, is create a mesh work, you know, of, of various influences. So certainly, I mean, I work with Jacobin, obviously I think Jacobin magazine publishes a lot of great stuff. I think my buddy, Dustin Guastella and his work uh, at Jacobin and with the Teamsters. I mean, he's somebody I've been thinking about a lot, uh, you know, because we've been doing a lot of work together recently. Really smart guy. Uh, certainly, if you've watched my shows, it's not going to surprise anybody, but I strongly recommend people read Adolf Reed. Yeah. Uh, his anti essentialism work just clarifies so much. Of course, Cornell West. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm like, so right now I'm doing everything from, I'm reading a lot more Chinese news sources, hmm. not because I am, you know, enamored of the Chinese government, but this is a place that people are going to need to have a radically more objective view of right now. Right. Um, uh, so a guy like Pepe Escobar, who I've interviewed, I don't agree with everything he says, but he's a brilliant really creative, really out there thinker who has a lot of insight. I read him in Asia times. Hmm. That's going to be a completely different doorway to understanding the world, uh, you know, in terms of Eurasia or China. I keep, uh, you know, I, I definitely check out in this sort of world, uh, Brent Cooper and Jeremy Johnson, uh, Michelle Bowen's peer to peer work. Uh, Hmm. He tracks, some very interesting developments in, in the commons and more in that anti-fragility realm. Right. Uh, also big picture, David Harvey. Yeah. Um, and uh, Harvey had a line, I forget Harvey had a line yeah. that was so awesome in, in his essay, the right to city. He said, you know, the, the question of, of what kind of city is we want to live in is the same question as what kind of people we want to be, what kind of lives we want to live, what kind of relations we want to have. He, he has such a good framework yes. of understanding the reciprocity between everything. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, and, and, and I'm, you know, so it's, and, and then obviously there's different doors of things that I'm really deeply interested in, like the Caribbean or, or Latin America. I, I would look, I'd watch Doris Paulo and Camila Escalante and Telesaur. It's very important understand uh and of course like look you know again people say oh that's biased i mean first of all the reporting is on on the issues relative to the caribbean and so on u.s foreign policy towards venezuela are accurate very good Mm -hmm. secondly you know i don't just mean this as a cliche it's really the truth that everything has a deep bias and the truth is that you need to try to pull from as many different sources to not create, not like say like, oh, okay, well, they're saying this and they're saying that, so let's meet 50-50, but really try to start to assess, you know, who's covering what thing the best and why, and how is it relating to a variety of other variables? So, I, you know, that's part, and that's, I think that's actually, you know, part of it is is just letting it be a little bit of your own meshwork and following mm-hmm. your instincts and seeing what you resonate with, Um it, you know, it, it, yeah, you gotta, you gotta follow, you follow your instincts, you know, cause, cause yeah. it could be a doorway. I mean, if it, I've been talking constantly about the last dance in the NBA, I yeah. know if you just watch the last dance, if you wanted to, you could, that could be a launching point to understand, uh, several really important political trends the last couple of decades, but also trends in, in branding and globalization and in sneaker culture and, you know, yeah. in sport. So, I think it's, you know, 
maybe this is kind of a consciousness answer. There's a lot of stuff that I'm tuned into, <laughs> but I think you, you know you got to follow your instincts on it as well. Okay. If you want to dig more into Michael's work, his show lives on YouTube. You can type it in and it'll pop right up. He also had a wonderful conversation with Jared and Jason over on the Both And podcast that I really recommend. Um, Michael's had a number of conversations as well with the great Dr. Cornell West. And, you know, listening to any of their conversations is always enlivening and, and a good way to spend some time. Uh, as always, there are links to Michael's work books mentioned throughout the conversation, uh, ways to support the project, all on the episode page, which you can find at musingmind.org slash podcast. Uh, there are also signups for the newsletter there if you want to get dispatches when new stuff comes out. And I believe that is it. All right, I'll speak to you all at some point in the future. Take care.